art is not necessarily defined by the product. In other words, you're not an artist because you've created one fabulous painting, necessarily. If you do art, if you make paintings, if you write, a writer is somebody that writes. Okay, welcome to the Book Society. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is author, editor, jazz guitar player, CEO of Fine Print Literary Agency, Peter Ruby, my agent, my friend, the guy who's guided me through this process of trying to get a book written. And I'm super excited to have you. Hi, Peter. How you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. I've got actually more bio for you. So this is for all the writers, especially the writers that follow Book Society on Instagram who might be listening. Peter is sort of a gift to all of you. He is a high-powered agent. He is also an author of, among other things, I'm just going to read a selected bibliography, Elements of Storytelling, Elements of Narrative Nonfiction, also known as my Bible for the last year and some change. Essential Guitar, Everything Get Published, Hispanics in Hollywood, that's one I didn't know you wrote, co-authored that one, Telling the Story, a novel called Werewolf, which met with a lot of critical acclaim, Everything Guitar, Everything Shakespeare, and How to Tell a Story. So that is a selected bibliography of the books that my agent has written, and the list of books that he has represented is probably quite a bit longer. We are going to hear from an actual agent today, but we're not going to be talking about agenting or literature. We're just going to be talking about the book that Peter selected, which is called Art and Fear, Observations on the Perils, parenthesis, and Rewards of Art Making by David Bales and Ted Orland. One of the things I want to just say is that Peter has been trying to get me to read this book since we first met, and it took him coming on the podcast and basically forcing me to read it to get me to do it. And I am angry at myself for not reading it sooner because it is A, very short, and B, extremely insightful, really interesting and important and prescient and beautiful observations about what it means to make art and what it means to be an artist. And it's also a little bit a version of the book that I'm trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's obvious why he recommended it to me. So Peter, why did you pick this book? For a number of reasons. Primarily because this is a book that every once in a while I go back to. I'm not a great one for rereading and reading and rereading the same book all the time. A lot of people find comfort in that with certain books, but I never have. I kind of enjoyed the experience of reading a book and then, okay, let's do the next one. I kind of always look at it as new adventures, new places to go to. But this book is a really interesting little book. If I was going to compare it to anything, and this is not a good comparison, but just in the sense, there's a wonderful book about writing that people refer to as Strunk and White, who are the names of the two guys that wrote it about grammar. And I was introduced to that book by a friend of mine many years ago, after I had been working as a professional journalist and writer for a long time. He said, you should read this book when I was trying to get into writing fiction. And my first reaction was, are you serious? I've been getting paid and writing, writing for speaking newspapers and BBC and all kinds of people. For the last 10, 15 years, I really don't need a book about grammar. Thank you very much. <laughs> and yet when I finally got around to reading the book, I actually had to confess that it was actually really useful in helping improve how my words on the page worked together in a more elegant and practical way. And this book, Art and Fear, 
the title alone appealed to me when I first got it. It had been recommended to me because the way we approach art of any sort, and we're having to use these highfalutin art and creativity. And I always kind of cringe a bit. Uh, an overuse of like, I'm really a creative person, right? Well, everybody's creative. And that was the point about what they were saying in this book, is that everybody's creative. But this was a book, first of all, written by people who are fine artists, the painters and drawers, but they managed to make this book for anybody in any artistic field, which is the thing that I find most fascinating about this book. Because if you can take what a painter does and what a poet does and what a writer does and what a musician does and what a dancer does, and, and you can go through the different art forms and find something that manages to say something to everybody, regardless of their discipline. And that is a little book that in some ways has really touched upon the essence of what it is that we're all trying to do. And that was the thing that really brings me back to this book. And the fear bit is, of course, that we're all terrified. And we treat our experiences creatively as very unique things. Oh my God, it's just me. And we're encouraged to do that as we should be. You're going to write the way you're going to write. And part of the writing experience is discovering how you do the thing that thousands of other people have done and continue to do as professionals in that field. And yet we're all terrified. Most learning is about how we learn. And it's taken me a few years to really come to terms with that. But we all learn differently. Yeah, we all have our comfort levels and our obstacles. And learning, whether it's to play a musical instrument or to paint something or whatever it happens to be, is really a lot more about how we figure out how to do these things. I mean, I can teach somebody to play the guitar in probably three weeks, but I don't mean that literally. I mean, I could show them and tell them what they need to do, and then it'd take them another two years to learn it all. Then the obstacle to learning are the obstacles that we bring as who we are as people. I want to jump on a few of the things that you said. I mentioned in the intro that you're a jazz guitar player. And when we first met, I knew that about you. It's in your bio. And as we've gotten to know each other better, I'm starting to get the impression that you're a lot more serious of a jazz guitar player than you let on just by casual names that you've dropped of people you regularly do gigs with and places you've played and things that you do. And also by the guitar that is in the background there. It's a pretty fancy guitar. That is not an amateur level. I want a guitar guitar. That's an heirloom quality guitar. So Peter is someone who does a lot of different types of art at a very high level. And one of the things in Art and Fear that I found interesting was exactly what you said, that I think it speaks to all these different disciplines and it speaks to basically anyone who does art. So I actually approached this book somewhat antagonistically, and I'll tell you why. When I was younger, I don't know, maybe in my teens or early 20s, someone recommended to me a book called The War of Art, which I think is probably one of the worst books ever written, but it was very popular at the time. I don't want to talk badly about books, but The War of Art is a book I would not recommend. And so I had this little scar in my brain about these sort of arty 
self-help books, and I thought this was going to be one of them. And to its credit, it is really a book of the philosophy of art, which I think is really useful. And if you open a lot of like self-help type books, like The Secret or something like that, they look like Talmudic texts where there's like a paragraph and then there's a box over here and then there's a highlighted thing with a picture. And this book has two text boxes that I found, which is, I think, a reasonable amount. But there's one thing in it that I wanted to call your attention to. So right at the beginning on page 15, he says, vision is always ahead of execution. And I thought about that, and I think that that is for the most part true, but I don't know if that's true in music. We all know young musicians who have chops for days, but really not much to say. And even mature musicians who have chops for days and not much to say. And I think that vision is always ahead of execution might be something that is specific to art and maybe doesn't apply in music. What do you think? Oh, no, I think it absolutely applies in music. Every time I have a conversation with somebody about some kind of artistic thing, I end up thinking these guys talked about that in this book. And one of them was that, you know, I was talking to this friend of mine who I would consider this guy probably one of the top five or 10 jazz guitar players in the world. And every time I talk to Larry about the problem I have, like I have this issue or I have that issue, he said, no, I recognize it. I have the same issue. And I keep thinking, hang on. And I actually said this to him the other day, you're one of the world's great guitar players. How can you possibly kind of have the same issues that I have? And it's because art is about the psychology of bringing to life this thing that you have in your head, this view that you have in your head. And so what this book really talks about, they give a wonderful example, actually, of us being frightened. The story, in essence, was that there was a woman who was a painter, a fine artist, who became a dancer, who got into dance. And she was really, really good at it, she found. So good that, in fact, she got offered a serious opportunity with a pretty decent dance company. And the moment that she, quote unquote, turned professional, it completely messed her up. She said, the pressure and what was expected of me and the reason I did it was I loved it, all started to get obscured, combined together to make it impossible for me to dance the way I had danced when I was just doing it as quite literally an amateur, a lover of what it was I was doing. And so I think this idea of what you have in your head and how you produce it is totally controlled by the terrors that for one reason or other remain unnamed until we're forced to try and name them as to why we do what we do and why it is that under some circumstances it's impossible to play effectively in musically. That's one story that I flagged too. On the other side of that coin, I have no sympathy for that point of view. I have absolutely no sympathy for someone who does something for love, but then can't do it once they're professional. And I encounter this a lot, especially in music. One of the things I hear from songwriters and from, you know, musicians just across the board is you write one song for you and one song for them. You write one song for you and one song for them and one song that speaks to your heart and then one song for the public. And my reaction to that was, what is art for you? What does that even mean? Art without an audience is therapy. Until you have an audience, it's not a piece of art. Until you put it out for scrutiny, it's not a piece of art because it's not communicating anything to anyone but yourself. So that's what I think. And most artists disagree with me. Yes and no, because if you look at the obvious thing that instantly jumps to mind was that back in the 70s or maybe late 60s, a painter who was this aged lady who actually became known as Grandma Moses. 
And the Grandma Moses paintings in the School of Art became really quite the thing in all the trendy galleries all over Europe because of this art that she was fairly rudimentary style Basquiat before Basquiat. But she'd created all this stuff without any idea of an audience. And truthfully, as painters, I don't think most painters paint with an idea of what the audience wants. And I think it's very true when you look at visual arts, what you're talking about becomes real problematic. And it's the tightrope you're on as an artist when you're creating a film or even when you're creating a book. They become team efforts, which authors nevertheless are the main creators of, but they're not entirely that. People come and say, change this, and why don't you alter that, and why don't you rearrange this? And that all makes sense if it makes sense to the author. You can't create a piece of art by teamwork. Well, I would disagree from the mountain in Hollywood that I'm sitting on. This is all of our art is created by teamwork. Yes and no, because the truth is works of art, use them in their broadest context, are created that way. But at the same time, it takes somebody like a Christopher Nolan or a Scorsese or a Coppola. I mean, Coppola and The Godfather, for example, is a really interesting story, which I won't labor here, but suffice it to say that he stood his ground. That movie originally was just supposed to be another gangster story and because he's Italian and the people that he cast in many ways were connected as Italian-Americans to the culture of Italian-Americans and at the time that it was made. He chose to make a film that wasn't just about gangsters, but about families. And so that film became, because of the vision of one person and the tenacity of one person to fend off all the guys that came on and said, our data shows that an audience will prefer to see a happy ending and Sonny getting shot at the toll booth and how Michael is gradually corrupted, all of that kind of stuff. It became a profound film, and it's because of one person's vision and how he stuck to it, but he still had a team of people that he worked with that helped him create that. Yeah, so this falls into the myth of the creative genius, and you will read about this in my next version of the proposal, but what you're describing is a narrative convention. What we do as Western humans is we ascribe a person to a chain of events, and we say that Eisenhower won World War II. Eisenhower definitely helped win World War II, but so did thousands or maybe millions of other people. Hannibal did indeed get the credit for invading the Roman Empire, but he brought a lot of people and some elephants. And so... The idea that a single person, and to take your example, the godfather, Francis Ford Coppola, you're absolutely right that he had this vision, but also Robert Evans, his producer, had a lot to do with it and had a lot to do with going to bat for him. And when you think of the godfather, most people think of Al Pacino and the great cast that was in there and the score by Nino Rota and all this amazing stuff that comes together to make it the work of art that it is. And not a lot of people think of the director, maybe today because Coppola has become such a household name, but... I think it's a fallacy to ascribe it to one person's vision because that person's skill set is the skill set of General Leslie Groves, the commanding officer of the Los Alamos base during the Manhattan Project. So he didn't 
actually invent anything, but he is responsible for allowing all of the other people to figure out how to split the atom. But for some reason, we don't ascribe General Leslie Groves as the splitter of the atom. He really was the Steve Jobs of that operation in that he wasn't technical, but he knew how to get all these people in a room and get them to do something. And to go back to what I was saying before about art for people and art for yourself, I would make the argument that Grandma Moses's art wasn't art until someone who was looking at it decided that it was. That's something you could have a fight with somebody in a bar about, I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to have a bar fight with you right now on this podcast about it. It's difficult to navigate. And that's really one of the things about this book is that this book really addresses this tightrope that we all balance on. There's all kinds of things that we can talk about that contribute to creativity and how more than one person ends up being responsible for creating something. And yet at the same time, it really is the individual that is the main driver of this. And I don't argue with that. But when you get into actual the way these guys painted, a great deal of what Leonardo did or Michelangelo did, which is clearly indefinably them, was actually a bunch of students. I'm not so sure it's totally true in Da Vinci's case because he had so many things that he was doing, but it's generally true that a lot of stuff that we think of as masterpiece paintings by one identifiable painter was actually, at least in some ways, created by his students. I mean, the point being that you're not wrong, but I don't think totally right either. There's a great example in this book of exactly what you're talking about. Another thing that I'm almost certain you flagged. <laughs> <laughs> so the story these guys tell in the book is about an experiment that they tried, where they basically take a class of students and split it in half and say to one bunch of students, okay, here's 50 pounds of clay, and I want you to go out and make as many great pieces of art as you can from this material. And the more you make, the higher the grade you'll get. To so the second group, they said, okay, here's the same material, but all I want for you to do is to make one great piece of art. That's all you have to do. You make a really great piece of art, and obviously we'll have to determine what we consider to be a great piece of art. If you can do that, you'll get an A. And if it's not quite so great, you'll get a B. And what they found, interestingly, was that the people that made as many pots, I think it was pottery, if I remember rightly, many pots and plates as possible, ended up making much better art than those that were focused on just the one great piece. They don't say this in the book, but artists in particular tend toward the perfectionist. I mean, I'm talking about real artists. This is where I start getting iffy about some of what you're saying. There are plenty of people that jump up and want to do karaoke. Oh, karaoke is totally based on the idea that anybody can sing, and we know that's not true, especially if you had to accompany them. But there are some great singers out there. There are some great musicians out there. And the more work you do at art, the more likely it is that one thing out of the many that you do is actually going to be there. Whereas as a perfectionist, whether you're obsessing over this word or the sentence, the pressure I have to deal with can really just stop you in your tracks. I don't believe, for example, in writer's block, really. Writer's block, I find to be an unwillingness to back away from the concept of what you're working on. And you just worry this thing to death because there is no answer to the question that you're putting. And so you just sit there rather than saying, you know what? 
maybe we should make the dog a cat. Maybe this guy shouldn't go through that door in the story. And then the moment you make that decision, then suddenly everything opens up again. You're absolutely right that I flagged that. That was literally my next note was this story about the ceramics that they divided the class into two and one half of the class was told, just make as many works as you can and your grade is going to be basically based on weight. And the other class said, make one pot that is brilliant. But I think that what that gets to is it sounds like what you're pointing out is that someone who makes a lot of work will be inspired some of the time. And so therefore, if you make 30 pieces, three or four of them might be inspired and might be great, as opposed to if you sit down to make one piece with all of the planning and preparation and hope that you're inspired. And that is what I fight against. I think that what is happening in this example is that the people who are making multiple pots are getting better at craft. And this is why I don't have sympathy for people who can do something as an amateur, but can't do it as a professional. Because for me, doing something as a professional means that on your worst day, you can rely on craft and produce something that's good. It might not be ingenious, but it'll be good, right? It'll be good. And it'll be, as one of my friends in New York used to say, not just good, good enough. And I think that's part of what it means to be a professional artist. And I just want to mention, because I never get to shout out my old teachers, but when I read this section about the ceramics, I thought about my English teacher in eighth grade, a third of your grade was based on the weight of your writing folder. Didn't matter what was in it. You had to just write as much as you could, and he would literally weigh it on a scale, and that was a third of your grade. But that's kind of what this book talks about. That's why I love this book. It's like 30 years old now, this book. And yet it could have been written yesterday, and perhaps even more so. It's totally relevant. Nothing in this book has aged poorly. One of the points that they make in the book is that art is not necessarily defined by the product. In other words, you're not an artist because you've created one fabulous painting, necessarily. If you do art, if you make paintings, if you write, a writer is somebody that writes. There's a very, very famous story, Irish playwright and poet called Brendan Behan, who was also notorious for his liking of the grape. And he was in New York in the 1950s. He'd written some plays that were performed on Broadway at some point. And so they invited him to come over to New York. And he ended up addressing a bunch of blue-haired ladies about writing. Brendan Meehan addressed these ladies and he said, you all want to go off and write. And you want to be writers. Well, just fuck off home and do it. And that was the end of his speech. He just disappeared. But that really talks, I think, absolutely about what these guys are talking about. We don't often have a choice except in succumbing to this need to do what we have to do and then mastering it in the way that's most comfortable to us, which is where the craft comes in. But the artist is somebody that creates art. Now, whether other people agree that it's art, which is what these guys talk about in this book, or whether you will become quote unquote successful, you then have to define what you mean by that. I mean, there are plenty of any kind of artists that you want to talk about who find that they're most comfortable working from home and not in the public eye. And Picasso famously, towards the end of his life, was really very reclusive. I'm just going to pick on something that you said, which is that an artist is someone who makes art. But that's kind of the same thing as saying an artist is someone who's creative. Creative is a word that they go out of their way not to use in this book. And the bar for what art is in any of the arts is extremely high today. And 
the bar for craft is extremely high. The barrier is craft. The barrier is not your own creativity. I actually don't agree with that. One of the things they talk about in this book, it's about this constant wrestling that we have with our inner issues. I knew people who were manic depressive, who were incredibly creative and artistic people, who were terrified of getting help or getting themselves straightened out because they would, quote unquote, lose their gift, lose their talent, lose their vision. But craft is kind of minimal. And one of the problems I have with just striving for craft, and that is not to say that I have an issue with striving for craft, because I regard whether you're writing or whether you're playing music, for example, as, as classic examples of people who need to master craft. But the craft is there in order to empower us to express ourselves in ways that become elegant and articulate. Right. And they touch on this, that one of the things that they say is craft is something that if you do it enough, you will learn it. I've encountered this in music students where Music is a great example because you can teach someone how to technically play a guitar, but that doesn't mean they're going to have anything to say. And I can teach someone how to produce music that sounds good, but it might not be very interesting. I don't think we're saying a different thing in that I'm not saying that craft is the thing you have to master and art is not something to think about. I'm saying that you have to master both and that a lot of artists, especially the sort of artists that think that they want to do one piece of art for themselves and one piece of art for the audience, are the ones who don't want to spend the time mastering their craft or who don't spend the time mastering craft or who don't think craft is important. Because I think if you deliver something to an audience that is interesting and well done, some of them will appreciate it. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be an instant hit, but you will be able to get across to someone. My life is filled with countless examples of people who have good ideas, but they cannot produce them in a way that anybody's going to listen to. Yes. This is what's so fascinating about what we do. It's really difficult to articulate in an intelligent way what it is that we do and others do and encourage them to do that. And this book, beyond anything else, does that. Everybody feels like this. These guys are writing about something that everybody feels, regardless of the discipline that you're mastering. The idea that you can bring it down just to craft or that you can take it to this search for the holy grail of a great piece and some kind of artistic Moby Dick where you're forever hunting the great beast that you know is somehow buried deep within you. If only you can free it from the rock that is your creativity. It's more mundane than that. And partly that's because art is about expressing a perception of the world around us in a way that resonates with other people. I'm not saying that craft is more important than art. I think it's a false dichotomy to have to weigh up one or the other. It's just that they're as important. And this discussion goes back to the sophists and the philosophers in fourth century Greece, where the philosophers argued in Gorgias, right? Plato argues that Gorgias, a sophist, is not really trying to drive at truth because he is using his art to make the weaker argument the stronger. And, and that's craft, right? If two people want something and they need to get it by verbal argument, the smartest one is not going to get it. The most artistic one is not going to get it. The most articulate one is going to get it. And that just is what it is. That doesn't mean that the best man always wins. And maybe that's right and maybe that's wrong, but that's the truth of the world that we live in. So if you are an artist and you want to be an artist for a living, you have to aspire to a certain level of craft so that you can deliver your art to the people in a way that they're going to understand. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get your message across to anyone. 
Well, yeah, I would agree with all of what you're saying here. We start getting into Eastern philosophy. And that's kind of what I like about this book, because this is, in essence, a book about philosophy, but philosophy from the perception of a study of the human condition, who we are, why we do what we do. We can come up with lots and lots of examples, but there are dark sides. The great craftsman, the great articulator is great until they become basically perverted, until other aspects of their personality come into play, like the great narcissist or somebody that has no empathy for other people and yet has this incredible gift of charismatic ability. It's not right, but that is just is the world that we live in. And because we're both in the world of writing together, I should point out that there is a word for writing that is full of craft and devoid of art. And that's called journalism. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Sorry, some journalism, not all journalism. Okay, so that really is put your dukes up. <laughs> so here the problem is, what we're looking at, when it comes to the world of journalism, that prompts the kind of comment that you made is not new. You can go back to the Spanish-American War. America basically captured Cuba from the Spanish, Cuba and the Philippines, actually, with the end result. But San Juan Hill and Teddy Roosevelt and all that kind of stuff. That war, that moment, was completely constructed by yellow tabloids, and they're fighting over the control of the news. That's the gorgeous in our society. That is making the weaker argument the stronger. But that's not journalism. That is something else. I mean, journalism, I think, is more of a craft than an art, but journalism that is done by an artist is brilliant. See, I wouldn't call journalism art at all, but I would say writing and how well you write is definitely, at its higher end, an art form. But that's because whether you're playing music or whether you're writing in any style, any form, art is the subjugation of technique into an expression that is uniquely the artist's, that is done with elegance and articulation. Now, because I say elegance, that doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't be disturbing and upsetting. Guernica, a famous painting by Picasso, is about the bombing of the Spanish Civil War and there's bodies all over the place. Delacroix, we have some disturbing pictures. Caravaggio actually killed somebody. Wait, 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 what? Oh yeah, Caravaggio was a convicted murderer. Some people suffer for their art, some people make other people suffer for their art. That's exactly right. That's not to excuse it. Art, I think, is unsettling. I mean, one of the definitions of art that I think people tend not to embrace, and that's partly because of fear, art and fear, is the fact that art is not just craft. It's not just pretty. It's disturbing. It makes us look at the world in a way that we haven't looked at before. And that's one of the things that's happening now in a really confrontational way with Black Lives Matter me too. We're living through a moment in history where things that we used to just sit around and drink and smoke and talk about in bars in the late 60s and early 70s, we're actually seeing that and we're seeing forces push back against it. And we're seeing a cultural moment that is disturbing. And the art that is coming from that is disturbing. 
because it is forcing us to confront things we don't want to confront. When the politicians seem to honestly embrace that movement for a multitude of reasons, but one of them being it's the right thing to do, then art has had an impact. But it doesn't make it pretty, nor should it be considered always pretty. But it is something that you walk away thinking about. And you can't create one piece and that's it for your life. And therefore you're an artist. The point about the story of making all the parts was that you continue to make art and you continue to refine and look at the perception that you have and the technique and articulation that you're able to bring to that perception. And one day you can walk away thinking that was okay. I remember talking to a friend of mine, a guitar player called Peter Bernstein. Great guitar player. One of the greats. One of the greats. Absolutely. No question. And I said to Peter, can I take a lesson? I take lessons from guys like we take our cars to the shop. They get the plugs cleaned and they wash the engine down and check the oil and all that kind of stuff. So I look at taking a lesson with somebody like that. It's my responsibility to get my shit together now. But it's helpful to have somebody say, with all these choices, these are really the ones you should be looking at. Don't worry so much about this other stuff unless you're really drawn to it. So I said to Bernstein, I'd really want to like how I sound when I record myself. I mean, that's kind of all I want to do. And he looked at me, and we were in a club at the time, and he looked at me and he said, that's not your job. And I thought, hang on. (laughs) And he was right. It's not my job to like necessarily what I do if I'm doing it honestly. And what drives me to get better is that need to like myself. But it's about this thing that I'd mentioned earlier and never really got into too much, but it's this idea of perfectionism. Perfectionism is a great thing until it isn't. And that's the problem. If you just become a journeyman and that's all you ever aspire to, that's no better. But you want to be a journeyman who aspires to be perfectionist, but at the same time, in the sense of mastering it, nailing it. But what do these terms mean? What does success mean? What does nailing it mean? Just so that you can play something articulately wonderful at 8,000 miles an hour, as a lot of young guitar players, there are loads of young guitar players out there who've got the most amazing chops. But the truth is, as much as I am awed at their ability to do things on the guitar, I can't even think about, let alone execute. Does it do that much for me? After you've admired that skill and the third tune uses the same approach, it's like enough already. Well, that's where we started is that I think that those people, their execution is ahead of their vision. That is possible in music. I don't know if it's possible in art. I would argue that it's not ahead of their vision. Their execution has replaced their vision. And the issue, I think, really boils down to, and I'm not knocking it, I'm just making an observation, I hope, which is that mechanics, craft for whatever word, but mechanics is much easier to teach, regardless of the art form, than the thinking that is required, the ability to take all of that mechanics and somehow make it so intuitive 
that your response is an artistic response. I think what you're saying, and I think is pretty similar to what I'm saying, which is that craft is something you can kind of teach anyone and you can break it down and make someone learn it. And I think craft is the way to make artists make progress every day, because you're not always going to make artistic progress. I'm a veteran of conservatory. And one of the things that I learned was that you're sort of learning. And if you can imagine a graph of your learning over time, it goes up drastically and then plateaus for a little while and then goes up drastically and then plateaus for a little while. And that's your technique, right? And then if you were to map your creativity, your ear, so to speak, the ideas that you have, that goes on the same trajectory, except for that's going up while your technique is flat. And then that flattens out when your technique is going up. So you're constantly in this push and pull of your technique starts to get ahead of your creativity. So you work on your technique and then your ideas start to get ahead of your technique. The idea is that you're always working on one or the other and only one of them is moving at a time. So Peter, let's wrap this up. I'm going to ask you the same questions that I ask everyone, which is to recommend two books. And I usually say by a living author and a dead author, but you know, whatever, just recommend two books. Well, I'm going to recommend two books by authors of mine, actually, because not only are they authors of mine, I really love their work. One is the mystery crime writer, a guy called Luke McCallan, who writes about a German detective. The first books actually started in World War II, and then they moved to post-World II, and then the newest one, which is coming out later on this year, actually takes place in the trenches in World War I. So they're missions, but he's done extremely well. Luke's books, Man from Berlin, and a whole bunch of others. They're really great. And then another client of mine, Louise Marley, who is now writing as Louisa Morgan, who is writing these wonderful books about witches. These are about women who have gifts and they suffer sometimes because they have these gifts. The first book of hers, The Secret History of Witches, and it was really about the women, mothers and daughters, more than anything else. And they are both excellent craftspeople, but the books go beyond that. I love it. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me for this. Thank you for being my agent. Thank you for your insight. And thank you for recommending this book. I'm going to probably reread it several times. I also want to mention that I talked to previous podcast guest, Eric Hoganson, because I wanted to buy this book for him. And I mentioned it to him and he said that he has owned it for years and he reads it about once a year. So anyone who hasn't read Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland, Go pick it up. It's 100 pages. You can read it in an afternoon and it might change your life. Enjoy. Thank you very much. The guy who's a violin player who wants to go and study with this great master of the violin. And so he goes and auditions for him. And the master listens very patiently and then very dismissively says, not enough fire, and walks out of the room. And the guy is devastated. And so he quits playing the violin and his ambitions to become a professional musician and becomes a very successful businessman. And then years later, he attends a concert given by the master and invited to go backstage and says, you probably don't remember me, but I was a pretty up-and-coming young player and I auditioned for you and you said to me not enough fire and that really devastated me and so I quit playing and I've always been haunted by what you meant by that and the maestro looks at him and he says oh I say that to everyone <laughs>
To which the guy is beside himself. And he says, what? I could have become a great player if it wasn't for you. And the maestro says, no, not really. He said, if you really were going to do that, you'd have done it regardless of anything I had to say to you. That's the end of the story. (laughs) 